very appropriate uh, message, I think. Uh, do not fear, God is with you. Do you think that's relevant for today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because many people feared, do they not? I almost feared losing my iPad. But I got it. <clears throat> um, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness, grace, and mercy. I would ask in the moments ahead that you would um, help me to communicate these truths to these people, your people, and um, that it would be a blessing to their souls, uh, even into mine, as I communicate it. We are so thankful that we have no reason to fear when you are with us. We know that, but sometimes we still do. So give grace to hear in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Do not fear. God is with you. Isaiah 41. It's great to be back in this series in Isaiah as we go through Isaiah 40 to 48. Um, as I said last week, I uh, was out of town for a couple of weeks. Always glad to be back um, to see your faces and new faces as well. Um, always good to see new people that are visiting with us. And, um, and from four weeks for the Bradleys here, uh, in 11 days right here, down, uh, we'll, when we get about three months into it, I'm, I want to hear you say 92 days, right? <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. Um, and over here as well, wonderful um, to be here. Um, fear. But let's, before we even talk about that for a moment, there is something that stands in the way of faith. There's something that stands in the way of faith. Um, and it may be standing in the way of a more dynamic faith to you who hear my voice. Uh, it's a state of mind. And this state of mind and emotion is capable of making even the largest people seem small. And when it's overcome, it can make even the smallest of people seem larger than life. We can say in history, um, it has been overcome to do several things. It has been overcome to free nations. It has been overcome to defeat giants. It's been overcome to fight for justice, to save lives, to speak for the innocent, to intervene in those that have need. Uh, it has been overcome to witness for the gospel. And I think we would all agree as we look at history, it has been overcome to, for people who have chosen death when freedom was available. And it's something that I think, if you observe it, and I think perhaps you would agree with me, um, that can cause people to make irrational responses. Uh, it can even make a person hire from society to protect their health, or, or even while they're alone in a car, walking by themselves. Um, it can silence the voices of millions. Throughout history, it has made liars out of saints, and it's made cowards out of those that would normally be brave. It can be very powerful if allowed. And of course, we're talking about what? Fear. Fear. Uh, there are phobias in society. As a matter of fact, one can't keep track of them. I think the last time I looked, there are about 70 or so phobias that are recognized. And I went to one website, and they were talking about the top 10, at least for their therapeutic approach. And they said this. We'll hear some of the, from their top 10. Um, how about this one? How about... Um, agoraphobia, the fear of open spaces. Um, how about this? Acrophobia, fear of heights. Some of you may have that, but some can have it to such an extreme level that going on an escalator in a mall, they get freaked out. Um, I can't possibly have, uh, uh, I'm glad I don't. I shouldn't say I couldn't possibly have it. I'm glad I don't have a fear of heights because I like hiking and going to places. As a matter of fact, um, next month, we're going to be going to Zion National Park, and I plan to go on Angel's Landing. And if you've ever seen Angel's Landing, two and a half miles up, and the last half mile, at times, it's only about so wide. And guess what? To your right and to your left is 1,000 feet. So if you slip, uh, that's why it's Angel's Landing. <laughs> into the hands of the Lord, right? The angel's going to pick me up and take me to the Lord. So I've been thinking about it. I've been watching videos, preparing for it what, to make sure that I don't, um, uh, how should I say, think too much of my skills. And I am cautious. 
You can't have a fear of heights if you want to go in angel's landing. Uh, how about this? Um, aviophobia, uh, a fear of flying. So some people cannot get on an airplane. They just have a fear of flying. But when you think about that for a moment, there are 100,000 flights per day that take place. So you're most likely going to get struck by lightning before you die uh, in, a, in a plane crash. And of course, we hear this one, claustrophobia, a fear of closed spaces. And consider this, entomophobia, a fear of insects. And some of you say, that's me. Um, Aphidiophobia, fear of snakes. Hmm. Yeah. How about this? You can't deliver the mail, at least the old-fashioned way, if you have this fear. Um, Sinophobia, fear of dogs. Uh, Astrophobia, astrophobia, that is, a fear of storms. So um, growing up in Florida, you had it all the time. As As a matter of fact, you could almost set your watch by it. Around June, July, it's okay, 2.45, a storm is coming, and by about 3.30, it was gone. So here is something else, trifoniophobia, a fear of needles. Hmm, have you had that problem with anyone, Doc? Um, okay. Nosophobia, a fear of developing a disease. It's similar to, and you've heard the word before, hypochondria, um, but in a different way because they're mild symptoms, and they think, oh, no. I'm going to die. I have a little sniffle. So that's a fear of that. And there's even this. This is, a, this is interesting. Anglophobia. You hear the word Anglo? So it's a fear of English or English culture. <coughs> I just say, oh boy, <laughs> why'd you fear me? <laughs> and then there's theophobia, fear of gods or religion. Okay? A telephobia, a fear of imperfection. Mm. And how about this? Uh, phobophobia, fear of fears. <laughs> and here's one, hopefully none of you have this one. Holomeophobia, a fear of sermons <laughs> from homiletics. <laughs> right? None of you fear sermons. You surely should not be at Grace Church if you fear sermons, right? This is not the place for you. There's a whole industry of psychology and culture that's given over to treating people who fear. Often our society is driven by fear. It's amazing what you can control if people fear. You can cause them to do any number of things if they fear. They fear getting sick. They fear death. They fear circumstances. They fear other dangers. And so now one can control lives if there is Fear. And what happens, in, sometimes in order to overcome fear, we see in our society superstition and mysticism and even occult practices to help a person overcome fear. But we go back further, about almost 3,000 years, and we would say Judah suffered from a fear. They suffered from a fear, fail divine faithfulness. And what do I mean by that? Here's Judah, as we have made our way through chapter 40 already. Here's Judah, and they're wondering, does God remember us? Does God care? Can we be ever delivered from these mighty Babylonians? Will God forsake us? Will he forgive us? What is our future? And although they would have had an oral history for sure, and even a written history of God's great faithfulness towards them, throughout their lineage, if you will, they still wondered whether or not God was going to be a faithful God. And we ask ourselves that same question at times. We are saying, will God be faithful? And we see that his track record is absolutely perfect. But then we still doubt. That's a part of the Christian life, isn't it? And I'm not saying in an acceptable way. I'm just saying in a way that's reality that we see that God is absolutely perfect. His, his track record is unstained. He is a God of absolute consistency, but then we still doubt. Fear has been defined this way. The painful emotion or passion excited by an expectation of evil are the apprehension of impending danger. And for Judah, what is our future? 
for Judah, they're wondering, will this faithful Yahweh come through for us, this covenant-keeping God? So it's relevant today as it was nearly 3,000 years ago. Uh, fear can, must be, I should state, fear must be addressed because of its potential to do what? It can debilitate. And it will call into question the faithfulness of God. Therefore, we cannot fear. Fear is relevant because if we were to look through Scripture, we would see it time and time again, especially since we see fear not, do not fear, do not be afraid as the most repeated command throughout Scripture. Why? Why is it repeated so often? Because people have a tendency to do what? Fear. Just like we see time and time again what God is saying to his people, remember, 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 remember. And why is it repeated? Because we tend to do what? Forget. Forget God's faithfulness. And so we must be a people who do not fear. So this is a message that I think will help you overcome fear as you learn the solution that Yahweh gave the people of God many, many years ago. So again, what is the scene? God is on the scene and he declares his sovereignty over all of creation and he's encouraging the people of God that I have a plan, it will unfold, but it will unfold in my sovereign time. And as we learn so often from chapter 40, we have to be a people that are resolved to trust in the faithfulness of God, even when we look at the circumstances of life and they seem to be overwhelming. Uh, we look at the circumstances of life and one is wondering, uh, we ask that question that is often asked of so many people, why? And here's the other question that often um, is joined to that, how long? And even the psalmist asked that question, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord? And we ask, why is this happening to me? How long will this last? Yes, the unbeliever asked that question, but they asked it from a standpoint of ignorance. They asked, well, you say to me that your God is a loving God who controls all things. He's absolutely sovereign. He's an immutable God. He's a God of providence. Then why is there hurt and pain and difficulty in the world. But even for the believer, they may ask the same thing. I mean, if we're to be honest, and we just assume be honest, uh, because the Lord knows our thoughts anyway. Is this not correct? He does. We have to be a people who are trust in God. A trust in a God who is beyond time, who is beyond the elements, and he's surely beyond any human power, and in this context, the human power of Babylon. Now, briefly, what have we already looked at? I just want you for a moment to look back at chapter 40. Chapter 40, we focus on this idea that God is capable of keeping his promises, and we were reminded in our last message from 27 to 31 that in verses 27 and 28, an eternal creator is fully aware of your needs. So he can meet my needs because he's fully aware of my needs. And he says here, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not weary or tire his understanding is inscrutable. He knows your every need. Judah is crying out, God, where is the justice that is due us? Why are these wicked Babylonians still keeping us captive? Do you not know? Have you not heard? How long will we stay here? And he says, I am the everlasting God. So he, he puts time aside. I'm outside of time. You will return when it is time for you to return. Then he says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I'm the covenant-keeping God. I will be faithful to you. I'm the creator. I created Babylon. I gave life to Nebuchadnezzar. And I will use Babylon and I will use Nebuchadnezzar for my sovereign purposes. And you need to be reminded, Judah, that the reason that you're in exile is because of your sin. You had the opportunity to learn from your northern brothers who were taken away by the Assyrians, but you did not. You became haughty instead, and now you've been taken away by the Babylonians. Learn your lesson. And let's pause for a moment, and we should 
make an application here. Just like Judah, we should be a people who can learn spiritual lessons by the fall of other people. Do you agree with that? I look at preachers, and sad to say, um, they seem to be falling uh, by the wayside every time you look at uh, a news clipping. But I want to learn from that. Judah should have learned from their northern brothers when they were taken away by the Assyrians. So a 150-year gap that's there, why why didn't they learn? Because often what happens, and isn't isn't this interesting when you hear these cases about a fallen preacher or a fallen politician or just a fallen person of notoriety, they seem to think it will never happen to, to them. What were you thinking? Why would you go there? Why would you spend your money there? And even at times, and I don't mean this in a a way that's meant to be cute because sin is not cute. Sin is what uh, our Savior came to redeem us from, and it is what caused his pain on the cross. So don't, don't ever think that I want to be cute when it comes to things like this, but I'll make this statement. So now that I've set it up, I'll make this statement in that some of these people uh, the, the way they sin is just stupid. I mean, you really, you're going to put it on a credit card and you think they're just not going to be found out? Have you not learned that text messages can be discovered? Do you not know that phone records can be found out? But there is a sense in which it won't happen to them, or perhaps it's simply this, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. And so we must be a people who can learn as well. Then notice, if you will, Isaiah 40. So he knows of every need. And then in verses 29 to 31, the eternal creator is fully capable of meeting your needs. Now, being aware of a situation and being able to meet a situation can be two very different things. And I think we're all aware of that. Yes, I know the need, but I have no ability to meet the need. I would love to help you, but I can't. I don't have the resources. So God is capable of the need, but he's fully capable of meeting the need. 29 to 31, he gives strength to the weary. Yes, you're weary, I can help you. And to him who lacks might, he increases power, I can help you. Though youths grow weary and tired and and vigorous, young men stumble badly. And if you remember from verse 30, I gave so much thought to this. It's such such a, a beautiful depiction in the language itself, and it's what's called an infinite absolute. And what he's saying is that men are, they stumble and imperfect. Then it's followed by uh, <clears throat> an infinitive to stumble. So it says they stumble to stumble. They stumble utterly. And as you are stumbling utterly, God is saying, I am there for you. And then verse 31, classic verse. Yet those who do what? What should they do? Wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get weary. They will walk and not become weary. Beautiful. Um, We must overcome fear. Why must we overcome it? Because fear and faith are polar opposites. They really are. And when we fear, we are essentially saying that, God, I do not trust you in this circumstance. I question whether or not you're aware I question whether or not you're able to meet the needs, even if you're aware of the needs. And what happens is we can allow the circumstances of life to overshadow the greatness of God. And it's not as if the God's great, that is, it's not as if God's greatness can ever be overshadowed, but in our minds, it seems that way. It was George Mueller who said this, and he says, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. And Mueller was surely a man of faith, faith. but true faith, uh, that is a faith that is is grounded in the word of God, A, a faith that says good theology is informing my mind. A good faith that says, I'm getting sound counsel from others. And so as I grow in true faith, anxiety is put aside. They cannot coexist. They are, in fact, polar opposites. And we know George Mueller to be what? A great man of faith, was he not? The millions of orphans that he cared for. Money is raised. And I I always forget the wonderful story. Uh, And I was thinking about this just the other day because I'm going to... um, 
I have to make a presentation to get to some support for something. And I thought to myself, what if they say to me, no? What if they say, no, we're not going to help you? Then my line was, I already had it prepared. I would be like Mueller <laughs> and I'll pray for uh, uh, that, that the milk cart to break down so the milk can be delivered to the children. And that's exactly what happened. The children were at one point in time were in need of milk. And he said, then we must pray. And what did he do? And they all prayed. And what happened soon after that, literally, as milk was on a cart, the wheel broke down. And so the person said, it's going to spoil before I, I can repair it. So Mr. Mueller, can you use it? Amen. <laughs> and we all need to have that sort of faith. They can say, my father, I have a need. Surely I can't meet it on my own. My God, will you help me? And we fall on our knees, and at times we need to wait for the milk cart to break and the Lord to provide for us. Amen? So we, here's a thought for us, developing faith. If it's true faith, how, do, how does one develop faith? And let me have you think it through this way. And it will be the circumstances... Thinking, grid, response, behavior. Let me break it down for you. So here are the circumstances of life. And what are some of the circumstances of life that potentially can bring about anxiety? I'll pause for a moment and I'll let you give me a couple of them. What are some of the circumstances of life that may create anxiety? Someone can say it. Wow. Okay, great. Health. Did I hear health? What else did I hear? Finances. What else did I hear? School, seminarians, always going to say that, right? Uh, Dr. Z, see what you do. <laughs> right? <laughs> what else? Death. Relationships. War. Absolutely. <laughs> All these things can cause anxiety in life, right? So the question is, here are the circumstances. Now, if I'm not thinking properly... I will respond differently to those circumstances, will I not? Yes. Just say, for instance, Paul, when he's writing to the church at Thessalonica, he says, well, I don't want you to behave as those who do not have hope. Those that have hope have the sense of anxiety. They're, they're wondering whether or not they'll see their loved one who is in the Lord again. And they're wondering perhaps even about their future when they cross the Jordan, if you will. What is awaiting me? He says, no, we are not like those who don't have hope. We do have hope. And why do we have hope? We have hope because of a risen Savior. Amen. And even last week as we celebrated it, we can in fact live a life of hope because we know a risen Savior provides for us our every need. And then we have to have a grid. And this is what I mean by this. If you were to, to think this way, here are the circumstances of life that are inevitable. Now, what I need to do is perhaps even put the grid first. Here is the grid that I need to have. And in that grid, it's like a sieve that what it's going to do is filter how I think. And how is it going to filter it? Because in this grid, imagine this grid, if you will, here's the grid. Here is theology. Here are the rows of theology. Here, here are truths. Truth after truth after truth. And what it's going to do, it's going to catch those anxious thoughts. It's going to say, fear, no, you can go no further. So we think, wait a minute, why should I be fearing my future with Christ? Is it not he who was buried and risen from the dead for my justification? Wait a minute, why am I fearing even circumstances in reference to finances? Did he not say I will never leave you or forsake you? And when you look at it, the context is connected to natural resources. Why would I fear my enemies? Did he not say that he is with me on my right side? Then I have a proper grid. And that's why I think those that have good theology should be people who fear less. Notice I said less. Okay? Notice I said less. Less. My heart goes out to people who sit under bad theology. How do you get through life? How do you deal with death? When you lose a loved one, how do you deal with that? When someone tells you you have two months to live, how do you deal with that? 
unless you have a grid that can inform you. And then when you have your grid that is proper, there's going to be a response. Now I can respond properly to the circumstances of life. And then now if I'm responding properly, that becomes what? Behavior. I will actually live differently. But it all starts that I have to have the right grid that if, uh, affects my thinking and then my responses, and that becomes a behavior. So Judah had a reason to fear. We're not saying it was uh, acceptable, but it was a reality. So let's walk through the text, and this is what I'm going to do. We're going to walk through this text, and then I'm going to come back in a way to say, here are the principles that you can take with you um, to help you live a life that is less fearful. Number one, verses one to seven, God is superior to the nations. God is superior to the nations. Now, what is happening? Notice what it says. Coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward. Let them speak. Let them come together for judgment. Who has arised one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him. He subdues kings. He makes them like dust with the sword as the wind-driven chaff with its bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by way he had not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, am the first and the last. I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter. And he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And he hastens it with nails so that it does not totter. So what is the first truth we can learn? It, this is a wonderful passage, and we need to understand what is happening here. First, coastlands, listen to me. Yahweh is saying to all the nations, all the nations in the world, come, but now come in a certain way, come in silence. So we have here a judge. It is the universal judge, King Christ. The Lord God is calling all the coastlands. Now, when it says islands or coastlands, one wonders, why does he use that language? Uh, <clears throat> Isaiah uses it because, in, in a sense, the islands were the, the distant places, not like the mainland. So he's saying, all of you come. Mainlands and islands, all of you come. Come to this court setting. I, the judge, court is in session. However you are not going to give any testimony. You come in silence and listen to me, and I will make the declarations for you. So this is what we see happening in verse 1. And it says, let us come together for judgment. Now, verse 2, notice, God is going to bring a deliverer. And this is a statement that he is superior over all the nations. Where do you get, from, where do you get that from? Notice what it says in verse 2. Who has arised one from the east? Who is coming from the east? My position would be this is Cyrus. Cyrus the Persian is going to come because who delivers the people of God from Babylon? Cyrus does. Why is this important? Because it is God saying, just as I controlled Shennacherib, uh, the leader of the Assyrians, just as I controlled Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of the Babylonians, I control Cyrus, the leader of the Persians. I am superior over all nations. And notice as well, God is the one that gives Cyrus success. Was it his ingenuity? Was it Persian skill? Uh, yes, but it only came because of God's general grace under his sovereign purposes. Notice verse 2. So he says he's aroused one from the east. That is, I'm going to raise him up so that he can bring Babylon down, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet. Interesting translation here. Some of yours may say who there is victory at his feet, um, righteousness at his feet. I, I take it that he is saying um, righteousness at his feet as the Nazbi has. Some will say uh, there is victory at his feet. That is, everywhere he goes, 
there's victory. I take it that he's saying he is doing God's righteous purposes at his feet. And why at his feet? Because that represents the sense of what? Humility, submission. Cyrus ultimately is bowing down to whom? To Yahweh. He is doing his will. And then notice, he delivers up nations before him. But that's God delivering nations to himself through Cyrus. He subdues kings, but that is God subduing kings through Cyrus. He makes them like dust. He pursues them and he passes on in safety. What does that mean? He wipes out one people and he goes on unharmed. Why? Because God was giving him success. And then notice in the end, verse four is so important. Who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, Yahweh, I am with the first and the last. I have no beginning. I am the God of history. I order all things. And then, if you will, go with me, go back to chapter 40. You remember when we were considering in chapter 40, it says, verse 3, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and mountain low and the rough ground, a plain, the rugged terrain, a broad valley. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And the position is that ultimately it will be Christ who will come, but it is also, I believe, it's speaking to Cyrus who will come and you'll see the glory of the Lord through Cyrus as he will deliver the people of God. So God has no genealogy. Verse four, he's unlike the gods of the nations. Look with me at chapter 43, chapter 43. So he is the first and the last. Notice Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I've chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. For me, there was what? What does it say? No God form, and there will be none after me. Look at verse 13. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? That should be comforting. So as Cyrus is going to pummel the other nations, it is ultimately God saying, no one can defeat Cyrus unless I allow it. When I decide that you are captured, you are captured. And then notice, if you will, um, chapter 46. Chapter 46, verse 4. What does it say there? I love the sound of turning Bible pages. Um, verse four, it says, even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will do what? Bear you up. I will be with you. I have done it and I will carry you and I will bear you and I will deliver you. Look at 48, 48 verse 12. I'll pause for a moment. I love what he says about even to your graying of hairs, I will bear you up. And he's talking about sort of Israel, even as you go into old age. But some of us that have some gray hairs, we can appreciate that, can we not? And I mean it from this standpoint. You see God's faithfulness through your life, don't you? I mean, you're 20-something, 30-something. Praise God that you can see its faithfulness. Um, but when you get past that, you have decade after decade of God's faithfulness. And you can say to yourself, and what you need to do at times, you must go to your own archives of God's faithfulness and recall how he is a God who has been with you, who has supported you and helped you. Because there will be moments of doubt when you want to fear and you want to be anxious. What you need to do is record in your own mind that no, the Lord is the one who helps me. Do you agree with that? Yes. So 48 12. And what does it say? Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. I am the last. So go back to chapter 41. Go back to 41. And then we see this illustrated really in verses 5 to 7. How do we know that God is absolutely superior? The coastlands of sin and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have grown, drawn near and have come. Now, this is so important. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong to the craftsman. He encourages the smelter. What is happening here? Here is false help. 
this is false help. Because what he's saying, it's a false strength. Remember, chapter 40, chapter 40 ended with those who wait for the Lord. He is going to give strength. He is going to raise up and they will take up wings like an eagle. But what happens here is those that love idolatry and choose idols instead of Yahweh, they will encourage one another. So the neighbor is going to say, be strong. We can make a way. And what way do they make? They make false gods because it says, yes, make us a God who can deliver us. And notice what it says in verse seven, saying of the soldering, it is good. Now, that's interesting language. Let your, if your mind were to go to the book of Genesis, what would you think about that phrase? Creation, would you not? Because the Lord said, what? It is good. And remember, God has been establishing, especially in chapter 40, I am the creating God, the creating God, the creating God. And now, here are these people who've rejected Yahweh and they decide we can conjure up our own strength. We can make our own God. But it's utterly ridiculous because notice what they have to do to their God. They say it is good and he fastens it with nails so that it does not totter. And this is the God that you want to serve. It makes no sense. Uh, I can appreciate this to a certain degree. Yesterday, I spent um, some hours, many hours, about eight actually. Um, no, it was about seven, um, doing some work on a deck. And some of you have been to our house before. Um, on our deck, we, when we bought it, there was a huge jacuzzi that was sunken into the deck, um, but it didn't work. So, <laughs> so I sawed it into pieces, pulled it out. And I thought, I'm going to fix this one day. But until then, I put two big pieces of plywood over it, nailed it down, and it was okay. Well, after some years and my wife's nudgings, uh, <laughs> the kind and gentle type, <laughs> she says, it's time for us to do something with that deck. We're going to have people over again with Sundays at the Hargroves. I said, you're right. We need to do it. So I got a little advice um, from a, I won't call him, he's an expert carpenter. I'm a so-called carpenter. And this is what we should do. And I said, okay, great. I think I can do it. Um, went to Home Depot, got some Joyce hangers, um, two by six by eights, two by six by tens. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty fun actually. And, and I kind of thought, rethought it, how I was going to hang it. I had to square it off, put it in, look back put the, the supports in. It was pretty stable. I walked across them, put the others. I said, okay, if it's 96 inches across, each one of those is five and three quarters. Tell him I need 17 of them. That should do fine. Sent my son to, to Lowe's. He cut it for me. I need to cut it 92 and a half, each one of them. We put it in, laid it in, and guess what? There's a gap. <laughs> it's not big. It's not big, but there's a gap. <laughs> All that effort and it still shows up. Now, if you look at it, you say, hey, that's pretty good. Uh, what am I going to do? <laughs> Wait, because right now I'm sore. <laughs> Seven hours of like banging and sawing and cutting. Um, these idolaters are ridiculous. Instead of Yahweh, it says, if you would humble yourself and wait for me, I will strengthen you. You can take up wings like an eagle. What do they do? He says, hey, my brother, strengthen yourself. Hey, let's make us a God. And they create a God. And they have to put nails in it so it doesn't fall over. Utterly ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. When Yahweh is available. So consider this. So a false God, false strength, false hope. Number two is this, and as you see, God is superior in his comfort, verses 8 to 20. How is he superior? Because first, he provides victory, and we see that in verse 8 to 13. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So notice what he's saying. 
there's a strong, first, there's a strong contrast. What is a strong contrast? Well, you have some who are saying in verse 7, let's strengthen ourselves. Let's create our own God. But he says, but you, O Israel, my servant. And then we see in verse 9, um, his faithfulness does remain. How do we know his faithfulness remains? Notice the end of verse 9. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Isn't it wonderful to know that once we are chosen, that we're forever chosen by the Lord? Wow, what a great truth. What a great truth that once we are safe, for instance, in view of safe, for instance, the truth of Ephesians 1, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. What a great truth that perfect love casts out fear. We have no fear of death. As a matter of fact, when we think about death, to us, it is a what? It is victory. Now, I want to live as long as I can to do the Lord's work. Not just so I can live long in this life. I don't want to live longer so I can retire one day and get a house near a golf course near a lake. No. I want to live as long as I can so I can do the work of the Lord unto his name. And that should be all of our mindset. God is a God who says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will never reject you. Why? Because you're a perfect people. Hmm, no. Because you're terribly consistent. No, no, not at all. No, not at all. Because you learn from the sinfulness of your northern brothers and you have repented. No, no, not at all. I will never leave you or forsake you because what? I am a faithful God. A faithful God. Do we really want to depend on our faithfulness? Friends, let me ask you a question. Do you want your salvation to be based on your efforts, your thinking, your consistency? I think not. It is based on the living God, and we can rest in that, can we not? Then here it is. Verse 10. Therefore, do not fear. I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely. I will help you, surely. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here is this great truth, the command for fearlessness. Now, when he says here, it's obvious, do not fear. We've talked about fear already, but why should we not fear? Well, it tells us right here, I'm with you. What does it mean to be with him? Now, what's important throughout, um, particularly in Isaiah, but other parts of Scripture as well, in Isaiah, remember we've talked about this before, uh, the transcendence of God, his loftiness and his otherness, right? But there is also the eminence of God. He is with us, and hence we have Emmanuel, which communicates what? God is what? With us. I am with you. And this is with you in a very practical sense. I am with you to support you. And how do we know it? Well, it's right here in the text. Do not anxiously look about. Uh, it could be, do not be dismayed. And the word means it literally, and that's why it's translated, do not anxiously look about, to be, to be dismayed. You're sort of like this. You're this person. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Your phobias are controlling your life. And you're looking about, thinking there's something that's going to harm me. There's something that's going to harm me. And he says, no, stop doing that. And I think this is why the scripture also tells us, in, even in the book of Proverbs, that it says, let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Do not look to the left or to the right. And if our gaze is on Christ, and if our gaze is on the faithfulness of Yahweh, then what is happening on the left or the right, it doesn't matter, does it? Now, the scripture never says there won't be difficulties on either side. But it says, I have chosen a path for you. And if you would walk in that path and fix your gaze on me, then you can live a fearless life, a life that is free, nearly free of anxiety. That's what he's communicating. When I go to next month to Angel's Landing and we climb up two miles and it's just switchbacks, then the last half a mile is as you're going out to Angel's Landing. And it was named that way because of, across from it is the throne of God um, there. And the Angel's Landing was a place where the angels would come and then supposedly uh, just worship God. And the thing about going up that last part of Angel's Landing, um, 
You can look to the left or to the right, but, but there's nothing to catch you. I mean, it literally is 1,000 feet down on each side. You can rest assured when I'm on Angel's Landing and there are portions of it, and I've seen it, it's, it is as wide as this area right here. Now, what do you think I'm going to do when I'm on that area? Where am I going to look? Someone tell me. Thank you. You're the brightest group there is, I'm telling you. No wonder you wanted to join Anchor. See the people around you? The people that are surrounding you, right? I'm going to look straight ahead. What is in front of me? This step, this step. Now, knowing me, so let's not be dishonest since I'm right here. Knowing me, I'm going to stop and do this. And I'm probably going to have my GoPro on and I'll get some video this direction and that direction. But I'm not going to do that. Don't look around anxiously. Gaze at me. And what do you gaze at? I gaze at sovereignty. What do I gaze at? I gaze at mercy. What do I gaze at? I gaze at justification. What do I gaze at? I gaze at the cross and sacrifice and love, unconditional love. What do I gaze at? The fact that he is an everlasting God. And if I can fix my gaze there, then here's the thing about it. What's to the left or to the right doesn't matter. That's also true for sin. Do you know that? If you can fix your gaze on Christ, sin is always going to be there. Then you'll find dissatisfaction of what's on your left and what's on your right. But I must move ahead. He says, this is well. I am your God. Unlike the false gods, I will strengthen you as opposed to human strength. I will give it to you. I already promised you that back in chapter 40, 27 to 31. I'm going to help you. I'm practically going to be there for you. Then he says, surely I will uphold you. And this is beautiful. Uphold you. Um, and it can be take strongly, strong hold of you is what he's saying. I think the LSB says something similar to that. Take strong hold of you. Because when you think about upholding someone, they are weak. And what do you have to do? Brace them. Do you not? Can you, can you illustrate something for me? Okay, please. Thank you. All right. Should I stretch first? No, no. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, straight ahead. So, if, if I'm with this brother and he says, I'm going to uphold you, if you're weak, what is your body going to do? It's going to go limp, right? And I'm going to do what? I'm going to uphold the brother like this. Let's go. We can do it. <laughs> <laughs> Uphold, it's not, you don't do it lightly. What do you do? You grab hold of them. It's the person is breaking down and you can go to them and you grab and you say, I'm going to take hold of you. Now, I shake hands differently when I'm here. This young man's hand right here. Yeah, excellent. Now his mom, there you go. <laughs> exactly. I took hold of his hand. God is going to take hold of you. And this is the promise of God. And notice what he says, with my righteous right hand. Now, wait a minute. Let's put things back in context here for a moment. Go back to chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Wait a minute. Where is your righteousness? Uh, hold on. My righteous right hand will do what is right. Cyrus is going to come and he's going to, in righteousness, he's going to be at the feet of God. My righteous hand will do what is right in God's perfect timing. And we have to believe that. Now, um, let's do this. I'm going to skip ahead. He tells us in verses really 11 through 12, his enemies can't contend with you. I'm going to fight for you. He's going to transform them in verses 14 to 16. They're going to go from a worm to someone that is fighting, that is brilliant. So let's pull it together. Let me give you the solutions. And I have eight. Number one, understand that you have real hope. Understand that you have real hope. Real hope is communicated because you're chosen. 
Uh, just as Abraham was my friend, you are my friend as well. You have real hope as opposed to false hope. Number two is this. Understand that God supports you. He supports you. Verse 10a, I am with you. I am your God. Number three, understand that God will empower you. We see this in verse 10. I am the one that will strengthen you. Don't try to conjure it up yourself. Don't go to your pagan friend expecting that they can give you any biblical solutions. They cannot. Number four, understand that God will uplift you. He says he's going to uphold you or he's going to take strong hold of you. Strong hold of you. And verse number five is this. Understand that God will fight for you. And what is absolutely true, true is this. If God is for you, then what? Who can be against you? It doesn't matter. Persians? Who are they? Cyrus? He's my servant. Nebuchadnezzar? Who is he? And whatever you face in life? Now, pause for a moment. Because some people can take a thought like that and say, that's right. Um, here's my promise. Uh, all my enemies are going to fall at my feet. And we have these wicked preachers who want to tell people that from this standpoint to say, you know what? You need to go in and you can claim the job. You can say no to the cancer. You can denounce it. Remember, God is a sovereign God. And sometimes it means that, that the end to the how long, we don't know how long. <laughs> and we have to wait. Number six is this. Understand that God is your holy covenant redeemer. And it's clearly that in verse four. Because I'm the one who is going to support you. I am your redeemer, he says, or I'm your goel. Remember Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. So I'm the one that I enter into relationship with you to help you. So what else does he say in verse, then in verse 7? Understand that all success comes from God. He's going to take them from being a worm who has nothing to offer to being a people who will be like a smeltering iron because I'm the one that supports you. And number eight, understand that God hears the cry of the needy. I just want us to notice it. Look at verse 17. The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, Yahweh, will answer them myself. Notice, myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers. I will make the wilderness. I will put the cedar. I will place the juniper. Who does it? The Holy One of Israel has created it. I will. Sometimes in life we want to overcome fear by our, our wills. We can conjure up enough strength. You'll find yourself in a vicious cycle. Here's a final thought. Final thought is this, fear will erase fear. What does that mean? Um, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, said this, World War II, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, but let me give you a twist to that. I would say this fear is necessary to get rid of fear. When you have a fear of the living God, then why would I fear anything else? You understand? How do you develop a fear of God? You meditate on these things. You build your grid. And you put in that grid, here are ways that I can fear God. And there'll be no gaps. Because all these anxious thoughts, as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, will be set aside. We can live a life that is more fearless if we would fear God. Amen? Father, thank you for these words you've given us. Uh, help us to practice them in Christ's name. Amen.